Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Florida Humanities Council and the National Endowment for the Humanities. It's also made possible in part by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the Brevard County Board of Commissioners through the Brevard Cultural Alliance, Incorporated. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Broatmarkle, and coming up on this week's program, we'll visit the Grove in Tallahassee, the former home of Florida Territorial Governor Richard Keith Call and Florida Governor Leroy Collins. We are uh, in the kind of initial stages of uh, our restoration work and uh, transformation of the property into what we hope will be one of the finest historic sites and homes in the state. The story of jailbird-turned-sheriff Okeechobee Pogi Bill and the history of Florida's Tabloid Valley. The way they operate it, or at least the way it's told to me, is they would shout out a headline or part of one, and then another one would add part of the story, and it would go on and on and on. All that and more ahead on Florida Frontiers. As you walk onto the property that is directly adjacent to the governor's mansion in Tallahassee, you are surrounded by old Florida trees. Spanish moss hangs from the canopy of branches where a variety of birds sing their songs. Following the paved driveway, you soon come upon a nearly 200-year-old neoclassical-style brick home with an elevated front porch. Columns support a triangular pediment across the front of the house. Robert Krauss is site administrator and historian for the Florida Department of State Division of Historical Resources. He walks with us onto the front porch or portico of the home known as the Grove. Originally there was an axial driveway um, that that one entered the Grove through. Uh, That was removed in 1940 by the governor. He placed the modern driveway addition in for the carport and uh, entrance around the south side of the property. Now what we also see uh, evidence of in the front yard are the uh, tremendous amount of tree species. All Florida native plants on the property, um, magnolias, pines, oaks, walnuts, camphor trees, uh, of course our ubiquitous live oak, palm trees, sago palm, needle palm. um, And architecturally the portico is an interesting uh, feature of the house, uh, not only because of the staircase that's been um, replaced and removed through time, several different times, but also because of the unfinished elements. Um, You'll see brackets for the the second floor, what was to be a second floor balcony. Those brackets are there primarily because the materials that were to be used in the construction of that balcony never arrived. They were lost at sea on a ship uh, that came from Birmingham, England. Bound for St. Mark's, they, uh, the ship was lost most likely in Appalachie Bay, um, just short of its destination, and uh, hence the second floor balcony was never finished. The Grove was originally built by Richard Keith Call in the late 1820s. Call was born in Virginia in 1792 and by the age of 17 was an officer on the personal staff of General Andrew Jackson as he marched on Pensacola. He was a military and political protege of Andrew Jackson and he moved to Pensacola with Jackson in the 18-teens, late 18-teens, where Jackson was the first territorial governor. 
um, and Call settles, uh, finds Pensacola to his liking, firstly, and then uh, ventures eastward to Tallahassee and um, helps to settle and establish the capital city in a dangerous but uh, promising frontier. Um, in 1821, he moved here to Tallahassee. Richard Keith Call served as territorial governor of Florida from his Tallahassee home known as the Grove. When Florida was named a state in 1845, Call ran an unsuccessful campaign to become Florida's first governor. Robert Krauss. Call was, was governor from 1836 to 1840. He served two terms, two-year territorial governor terms, and was one of the major proponents and advocates of statehood um, and actually helped to assemble the first constitutional convention in uh, St. Joseph. Um, so he was central to the development of Florida as a state. Uh, and was also a very successful lawyer and land surveyor, grant patentor here in Tallahassee. Richard Keith Call owned a successful plantation north of Tallahassee, but the Grove was the townhome for the family and the center for public and social gatherings. There were no agricultural activities, uh, massive sort of uh, in plantation-type agricultural activities on the property. Um, Call had a, a separate 3,000-acre plantation near Lake Jackson, north of Tallahassee, where um, most of his cotton, sweet potatoes were grown, um, sugar cane was grown. And, um, but but the, 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 the grove itself served as the sort of townhome for Call and his wife and family. Um, but they did have house servants and uh, small garden plots. Following Call's death in 1862, the grove was inherited by a series of daughters and cousins. In 1942, the Grove became the home of Florida Governor Leroy Collins through his wife, Mary Call Darby Collins. By this time, the home had fallen into disrepair. Mary Collins led the restoration effort and became a leader in the historic preservation movement. Robert Grouse. Mrs. Collins was central to the rejuvenation and redevelopment of the Grove. Um, the, the the house had been uh, had served a various uh, number of, of uses from 1890 through 1930, 1935. Um, it, it had served as a as a silk farm at one point. There was a hotel and boarding house on the property. Um, so a multiple use, but it, it time took its toll, as did um, financial obligations to the mortgage on the home. And uh, the Collins family uh, had long been enamored with the Grove and interested in its purchase and development as, a, as their own private residence. And uh, Mary Call Collins, being the granddaughter four times removed of one Richard Keith Call, um, that helped purchase the home and was really central to uh, revitalization of the grounds. And uh, so we see that legacy continuing today also in the uh, just majestic sort of beauty of the place. Leroy Collins served three terms in the Florida House of Representatives and was elected to the Senate in 1942. In 1954, following the death of Governor Dan McCarthy, Leroy Collins was named Florida's 33rd governor in a special election. In 1956, Collins was elected to a full term as governor. Collins was a very popular governor during a high growth period for the state. Well, Collins was a man... Uh who, who really led a, a period of modernization in Florida. In addition to um, his works as, as governor, he helped um, basically build the, the state infrastructure, develop um, expressways and modern highways, um, develop the community college system, helped develop the state's universities. And he also, uh, more broadly, I think principally, um, 
practiced a sort of politics of unity and showed people in Florida that they had more in common than their differences at a time that was uh, very difficult uh, and tumultuous for, for many people. And um, I think Collins' legacy is is this uh, unifying force in state government, and and, uh, and nationally he's very significant. And not only in addition to his help with passage of the 1964 Civil Rights Act, but also the 1966 National Preservation Act, which is central to um, historic preservation in the United States. Um, and really, we see that legacy also continuing at the Grove, uh, where. Much of the, or all of the additions and uh, um, additions that the family, that the Collins family uh, conducted at the Grove were, um, did not, none of them threatened the historic integrity of the site, of the structure itself. Um, everything was built essentially onto the foundation with an eye towards preservation. So the Division of Historical Resources looks forward to maintaining that legacy as well. Currently, the Grove is empty as the structure undergoes repairs and renovation, transforming the home into a museum. As Robert Krause gives us a tour, our voices echo throughout the vacant rooms. This house was built uh, over the course of 10 years, uh, from 1826 roughly to probably 1835-36. There's no actual documented record of it being completed, which sort of adds to the mystique and intrigue of the house. Uh, But Richard Keith Call designed the Grove with his wife's interest in mind. He was a confident man, uh, confident enough to marry a woman whose parents were staunch anti-Jacksonians and as the protege of Andrew Jackson um, and and at the encouragement of Andrew Jackson, Richard Keith Call marries Mary Kirkman at the Hermitage in 1824. He constructs and designs this house um, to suit her, uh, her relatively affluent upbringing in Nashville. And many of its features are directly inspired by the Hermitage. For instance, the uh, stairway and staircase directly kind of copying or, or uh, reproduced from the Hermitage. Um, and we're standing here in a uh, beautiful uh, foyer with uh, wooden floors and uh, very spacious leading up to the, the, the staircase you were mentioning. And we have uh, pretty spacious rooms with fireplaces off, off to the side here. Yeah, that's right. And the, the floors themselves are the original. We have never had to replace, the Collins family never replaced any of the wood. It's all heart pine harvested from the Grove site um, and, and remains in, in outstanding condition, much like the rest of the home. Uh, in 1885, uh, Ellen Long Call, Richard Keith Call's daughter, or granddaughter, excuse me, uh, wrote a book called Florida Breezes, and in it she describes... Uh, what Richard Keith Call said to her mother. And he, he, he remarked about the Grove that this was a house that was built to last and built to be beautiful forever with simple lines and simple um, symmetry, but with a sort of refined uh, simplicity. And we feel like the, that, that continues to this day. We're walking up the, the stairs here, the beautiful uh, curved staircase, and now we're on the, the second floor of the house. The second floor of the home has been pr- primarily a bedroom space through time. Um, and at one, for 50 years, the house served as a hotel and boarding room. A lot of these rooms were subdivided into separate rooms. There was no bathroom upstairs until the 1950s edition of, of bathrooms by the Collins family. 
And uh, a fire in 1934 in the upstairs attic, in the attic, um, nearly destroyed the grove in this property. Fortunately, it was contained to the second floor, but you can see traces of the of burned uh, charred wood and also in our brick, in the brick headers above the windowsills, there's evidence of a fire also. Upon completion of the renovation currently underway, the basement, main floor, and second floor of the grove will allow the home to serve as more than a traditional house museum. While period furniture and antiques will certainly play a major role in the facility, Krauss says there is also plenty of room for interpretive exhibits. The Grove will also provide educational outreach through the Call Collins Center for Principled Public Service. The Grove is expected to open to the public in July 2012. Krauss explains how the Grove became a public property under the Division of Historical Resources. In 1985, um, Mary Call Collins and, and Leroy Collins uh, essentially transferred upon their passing the property and the mansion to the state of Florida for its eventual use as an historic site and museum. Um, the, the, the residence continues privately owned and, and maintained uh, until 2009. The governor passes away in 1991. Uh, Mary Call Collins passed away in November 2009 at the age of 99. Um, we miss her. Uh, obviously, her presence is felt every day, but at the same time, this brings us to our current project, and, and the house was deeded over to the Division of Historical Resources a year and a half ago, and we are uh, in the kind of initial stages of uh, our restoration work and uh, transformation of the property into what we hope will be one of the finest historic sites and homes in the state. Robert Grouse is site administrator and historian for the Florida Department of State Division of Historical Resources, overseeing the transformation of the Grove into a museum and educational facility. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Join us on the web at myfloridahistory.org to find out about upcoming events, listen to archived editions of this program, find great books on Florida history and culture, and much more. While you're there, click on the Join Now button to become a member of the Florida Historical Society. You'll get our journal, the Florida Historical Quarterly, and much more. That's myfloridahistory.org. In 1513, Spanish explorer Juan Ponce de Leon landed on Florida's shore, beginning a cultural relationship between Spain and Florida that will be commemorated throughout the state on its 500th anniversary in 2013. This moment in Florida history features Bonnie McEwen, Director of Archaeology at Mission San Luis, Tallahassee. Between 1702 and 1704, British colonists in the Carolinas enlisted the help of that area's Indians to destroy North Florida's Spanish missions. But later, English treachery and betrayal resulted in one of the largest native uprisings of the colonial era. The British had extended credit to their native allies during the period of conflict, but now believed that the Indians would never be able to repay them. Seeking to recoup their wartime expenses, the British planned to kill the native men whom they no longer needed as military allies and sell the women and children as slaves. The Indians learned of these plans and initiated the so-called Yamasee War. Following this failed rebellion in 1715, a number of these Indians sought sanctuary in St. Augustine, 
among the very Spaniards they had sought to destroy a decade earlier. Bonnie McEwen is Director of Archaeology at Mission San Luis, Tallahassee. This moment in Florida history was created and produced by the Florida Humanities Council with funds from the Florida Department of State Division of Cultural Affairs, commemorating 500 years of Spanish history and culture in Florida. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. After Pogi spent some time in jail, and with Okeechobee growing, but still wild and out of control as ever, some of the town's leading citizens came to Judge Hancock with a proposal. Knowing that Pogi did have a good side to him, the idea was to release Pogi from jail, on the condition that Pogi would behave himself and become the town's marshal. Nobody else was really tough enough for the job anyway, and nobody else had stepped forward to take it. Judge Hancock visited Pogi personally, and after discussing the arrangement, Pogi agreed to the deal. To the surprise of many, Marshal Pogi Bill kept his word, and in a short amount of time, Okeechobee was cleaned up. He found himself chasing out and arresting the very same Hellraisers he once tore the town up with. And two short years later, in 1918, he became the sheriff of the newly formed Okeechobee County. Early 20th century Florida is full of colorful characters. Musician Eric Overholtz discusses one of them, jailbird-turned-sheriff Okeechobee Pogie Bill. Janie Gould has more. One of the most colorful characters in Okeechobee was a hard-drinking fisherman named William Collins. Everybody called him Pogie Bill. That's because he tried to pass off some bait fish, known as pogies, as catfish. Pogie Bill was appointed town marshal while he was serving a jail term. Later, he was elected sheriff. It was around 1915 when Okeechobee was still a frontier. Eric Overholtz, a lieutenant in the Broward Sheriff's Office, is a musician and a Florida history buff. He studied the life of Pogie Bill. He had a penchant for getting drunk and getting into brawls. Sheriff Pogie Bill did a little moonshine on the side, isn't that right? He wasn't so much a moonshiner himself, but he allowed it to happen, kind of looked the other way. He had a kind of a dim view of prohibition. Even though he had quit drinking, he felt that as long as a person could control themselves, he didn't see a problem with a person having a drink every now and then. Was moonshine a big business in Okeechobee? Absolutely. It became even more important when the hurricanes hit, the 26th one, and especially the one in 1928. They were really devastating the fishing industry and wrecked a lot of the towns around the lake. Moonshining became a very viable source of hard cash. Pogi saw it as a necessary evil. He just didn't like the Fed sticking their nose in things. The revenueers. Right, the revenueers. It was reported that Al Capone's people had approached him about making inroads into the lake territory because they were already operating in Dayton and Broward counties. He told them in no uncertain terms that they were not welcome. They backed off. He could be a tough character. He did some jail time himself. Yes, not for the moonshining, which he was later convicted of, but prior to being appointed the town marshal. He did 90 days in jail. It was a situation where Judge Hancock was his name. He had sent a deputy to talk to Hoagie about his hell-raising ways. On Saturday nights, the town was known for cat fishermen and cowboys and sawmill workers getting into fights. They would literally tear up the town. Businesses would be ransacked. One person even reported seeing three different fights happening at the same time. One inside a bar, one outside the bar, and then one in the street. But what happened is that when the deputy went over to talk to Pogi, some of Pogi's friends intercepted the guy, and they actually disarmed him and then tossed the deputy in this muddy creek. 
Pogi declared himself judge. He held uh, court in uh, Doc Darrow's grocery store uh, while barefoot. He declared each of his friends guilty. He fined them a quart of whiskey apiece, <laughs> which they all polished off. Pogi thought it was just a big joke, and he was having fun with it, but Judge Hancock wasn't too amused. And Pogi arrested. So when he was doing time in the jail, that's when he was named town marshal. How did that happen? Some of the town's leading citizens were desperate to have someone that could come in and really lay down the law in the town. The town was growing, but at the same time, they needed some control there. They knew that deep down inside, Pogi was basically a good guy. He had a unique system of justice. Anytime that he and his buddies would tear up the town, if there were any kind of innocent bystanders, he'd make sure that they were compensated. So they came to Judge Hancock with a proposal. If Pogi would behave himself, please let him out and let us appoint him as town marshal. Pogi agreed to the deal. By all accounts, he really cleaned up the town. He arrested a lot of the people that he actually tore the town up with. Some of his old buddies. Some of his old buddies, yes. While serving as sheriff, Pogey Bill was charged in a moonshine conspiracy. He tried to run again while the case was on appeal. He lost by uh, three votes. Now, more than eight decades later, there's a restaurant named Pogey Bill's in Okeechobee. And Eric Overholtz recently recorded a song about the the legendary lawman. Cheney Gould prepared that report. The biggest marvel, though, was how he had changed to become a true model citizen. He quit smoking, he quit drinking, and he married a nice local girl. They never had any kids, but he had a special place in his heart for children, perhaps because of his own troubled upbringing. He created youth boxing and baseball teams as an outlet for youth to keep them out of trouble. And he's also credited with forming the lake area's first Boy Scout troop. As popular as he was, he never accumulated much wealth because he was often reaching into his own pockets to help those less fortunate than him. Black, white, Indian, it didn't matter. If he heard someone needed assistance, he saw that he was there to help. Was he unorthodox? Absolutely. But was he effective? To most people in the lake area? Absolutely. This is Florida Frontiers. Sometimes called supermarket tabloids, they're often dismissed as sensationalism or just plain trash. Bill Dudley talks to the author of a book that reveals the freewheeling history of the checkout counter newspapers that have made their home in the Sunshine State. I'm working for this crazy outfit in Florida where you get to do the best stories for great money. They get you your green card, pay unlimited expenses, send you all over the world, You stay in the best hotels and eat in the finest restaurants. And you live next to the ocean in South Florida. You can't beat it with a stick. An Englishman working for the National Enquirer writes to one of his reporter friends back home. Freelance journalist Paula Morton is the author of Tabloid Valley, Supermarket News and American Culture, a book detailing the rise and decline of the weekly tabloids over the last half century. It all began in 1952 when New York entrepreneur Generoso Pope Jr. bought a small weekly called the New York Enquirer. Initially losing money with General News, he changed the course of his paper after witnessing a bloody car accident. He was fascinated by the bystanders. They were standing there and they were drinking it in. And he decided if that's what the public wanted, that's what he would give them. And so he switched to strictly gore. With a new smaller tabloid-sized format, the National Enquirer was born. 
But a few years later, noticing that with the flight to the suburbs, more people were buying papers in supermarkets rather than newsstands, Pope again changed direction. Celebrity romance, human tragedy, medical news, and psychic predictions replaced sex and gore. Soon, tabloids were appearing on specially designed racks next to checkout lines. The stereotype of tabloid readers then was people in trailer parks, illiterate, clueless, and gullible. And that really wasn't the case. University of South Florida anthropologist Elizabeth Byrd. In 1992, she published Inquiring Minds, a cultural study of supermarket tabloids, the first academic examination of the tabloid phenomenon. The people who read tabloids are also the same people who read a lot of other magazines, watch the news. So the tabloids really aren't that different in a lot of ways than any other kinds of light publications. In 1971, Generoso Pope moved his operation from upstate New York to Lantana, a small town in Palm Beach County. Although the company eventually moved south to Boca Raton, many Lantana residents still remember the giant Christmas party thrown each year by the company, complete with 150-foot-tall tree brought from the Pacific Northwest. A lot of people said it seems to fit. You know, Florida is known as a sort of crazy state where anything could happen, and I think maybe that, that is, there is a good fit there. Thus began the golden years of the tabloids, with high-powered investigative teams pursuing the famous and the infamous, often scooping the mainstream press with scandals involving celebrities like Gary Hart, Bill Clinton, O.J. Simpson. They also did police work, uncovering the facts and the death of comedian John Belushi. And all of a sudden... This became more important to the National Enquirer readers than a story about vitamins. By contrast, the Weekly World News, created in 1978, contained no actual news at all. The paper, with its stories about Bat Boy and Elvis, was concocted by a team of writers in a back room at Enquirer headquarters. They never left the office. The way they operated, or at least the way it's told to me, is they would shout out a headline or part of one, and then another one would add part of the story, and it would go on and on and on. The 1980s saw two more tabloids arrive in Florida, as the Globe and the National Examiner set up headquarters in Boca Raton. Inquirer founder Generoso Pope died in 1988. Today, one South Florida company, American Media Incorporated, owns all five surviving papers. The tabloids are not unique to the U.S. Almost every country in the world has some form of tabloid. I think what they do is they, they really speak to our kind of sense of human connections. The stories are all about people. They're not about large abstract things like economics or politics. The way they cover politicians is as people, as human interests, that kind of thing. That's just almost like a universal interest. Today, tabloid readership is down. Their sensational style has been adopted by magazines, TV, and now the Internet. Still, Elizabeth Byrd believes some form of tabloid journalism will always be a part of our culture. Oh, there will always be a place in our society for gossip, speculation, and discussion about people and about how people operate and why people do the crazy things they do. I'm not sure that tabloids as a form are going to exist for very much longer. Their place has been taken by so many other kinds of media. Tabloid Valley by Paula Morton is published by University Press. I'm Bill Dudley. With funding from the Florida Department of State Division of Cultural Affairs, this report was produced by the Florida Humanities Council. You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Please join us again next week, and until then, visit us on the web at myfloridahistory.org, join us on Facebook at Florida Historical Society, 
and follow us on Twitter at MyFLHistory. Have a great week. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Florida Humanities Council and the National Endowment for the Humanities. It's also made possible in part by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the Brevard County Board of Commissioners through the Brevard Cultural Alliance, Incorporated.